the podcast for the inquisitive diver. Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the show. My next guest has spent many a year working on board the luxury vessel True North, venturing into some of the most unexplored tropical locations on Earth. Armed with a multitude of skills and a PhD in coral reef ecology from James Cook University, Andy Lewis is now the executive director of the Coral Sea Foundation. And he joins us today from Magnetic Island, Australia. Andy, welcome to the show, Chief. How's lockdown doing in Queensland? Thanks, Matt. Hi to all your listeners. Yeah, we're doing fine. We're just uh, staying at home and relaxing, really, as you do in a lockdown. It can't be too bad a place to uh, sit and relax on a nice little island. Yeah, the beach is down the end of the street and the jungle's at the other end, so we're living the tropical <laughs> life. <laughs> Happy days. Do you want to give us a bit of a background on, on where diving and, and where your watery world first began? Sure. Uh, I came up to North Queensland in 1987 as a fresh-faced 17-year-old to study marine biology at James Cook University. And, of course, the very first thing we did in the very first Easter holidays was to go diving. And we did our open water dive ticket out on the Great Barrier Reef in 1987. And that was myself and a group of guys that that I was studying with at James Cook University. Uh, so I went through uh, my undergraduate degree. I, I did a double major in marine biology and organic chemistry at James Cook University. Mm-hmm. I then worked in the chemistry laboratory for a year analysing samples from coral reefs uh, and testing them for potential pharmaceutical activity. So lots of soft corals and acidians and sponges, which uh, have a, a whole host of potential uh, useful drugs in them. And then at the end of that year, I'd saved enough money to put myself through honours. So I did honours in uh, marine biology at James Cook University, studying reproduction in cephalopods, funnily enough, um, looking at their, at their reproductive output. And, um, and I got a first-class honours in that, in that degree, and that opened the door for me to jump straight into the PhD program at James Cook University, bypassing the master's. So at that point, I was actually pretty ready to travel overseas and start going, doing some more diving in a whole lot of different places. But of course, at the end of honours, you don't have any money. And <laughs> my potential PhD, so I said, look, I'm sick of the academic system and the bureaucracy. I would <clears throat> like to go. Hmm. And he said, well, you know, you can study for another three years, be paid to go diving. And at the end of it, you'll have a PhD and you can sort of, you can go where you want. So I did that. Um, I, for my PhD, I studied the temporal dynamics of, of coral reefs. So that means how they change through time. Mm. And my study site was out on the mid-shell uh, Great Barrier Reef, about uh, 85 kilometres northeast of Townsville, out on a, a reef that's called Walker Reef. And um, what I was really interested in was how the reef was changing through time. And, of course, to, to, to study that you need to regularly dive exactly the same places so i had 10 uh, beautiful bombies up in the shallow uh, waters of the lagoon of walker reef in about five meters of water Mm -hmm. Uh, each bombing was about 20 meters diameter Uh, surrounded by open sand there were no other bits of coral in view so it, it gave me a very good study system none of the fish that were on those sites would leave the site as I was doing the surveys. Mm. So I was able to get very, very tight estimates of fish abundance and coral cover. We videoed the whole site. And, of course, I, I was out there virtually every month for three and a half years. We, we did about a 1,000 hours of diving in that project, mm. and it was about 225 
individual trips in my – I had an 18-foot shark cap and we used to go out from the Orpheus Island Research Station, dive on Walker Reef and then come back in at the end of the day. So 225 trips, 1,000 hours of diving. And halfway through the study, we actually busted up the coral on, on half of the study sites and we left the other half as controls because what I was really interested in was how the reef recovers from disturbance, you know, given that even then we knew that crown of thorns outbreaks were active, cyclones had been damaging the Great Barrier Reef forever. Mm. Uh, and and it's, it's a, one of the, the interesting aspects of the ecology of the system is the fact that it, it very rarely ever reaches full ecological equilibrium well before that point it gets hit by another disturbance and it starts the recovery process again so that's what i looked at for my for my phd Mm -hmm. um and that was that was great and then when i when i finished that i was indeed ready to leave academia and so i i went out into private industry i thought okay i'll give myself three years to to make a living as a consultant if i can't do that then i'll go back and look for a postdoc or some other position at the university Mm. And my original thought, obviously, was that I would move into impact assessment and monitoring, given that that was a lot of what my PhD work had been on. But it just so happened in, in the last year of my PhD, I started doing some consultancy work, uh, essentially taking groups of university students out to the reef and doing field education programs for them. So explaining the reef with lectures every day, but also getting them in the water, getting them collecting data, doing field work. And I suddenly realised that was a really um, worthwhile thing to be doing. I, I, you know, I was a little bit disillusioned at the end of that academic process when you put in all this work, risk your life um, over three and a half years, and, it, and the work sort of disappears into the, the academic system and, you, you know, you get a few reprint paper requests and a few people slap you on the back and half as many people argue with you. Um, <laughs> Whereas, you know, suddenly I would, I would take a group of 20 people to Lizard Island and I think half of them would be in tears at the end of 10 days there just saying this has been an absolutely life-changing moment for me. I'm going to go away and study coral reefs. I'm passionate about the ocean now. You've changed my life. And I suddenly went, wow, okay, there's a, that, that seems a lot more wholesome. So I ended up going down that track into, into what I would call field education marine biology and so we we did a lot of groups with study abroad students from america we we did a lot of groups with australian students both university and and secondary mm-hmm. and so i sort of did that for 10 years using mostly lizard island research station as a base but also orpheus uh and also using liverboards on the great barrier reef and um after i'd done it for about 10 years in 2005 my father bob lewis did a voyage on the true north along the Kimberley coast and he had a fantastic time, but he came back to me and said, Andy, there's no marine biologist on the boat. And he said, you really should talk to the owner, Craig House and, um, and offer your services. And, you know, they're going to go to some amazing places. They're going to go to the Rolly Shoals and Papua New Guinea. So I did that. So in, in 2005, I met Craig House and he said, yeah, come out to the Rolly Shoals next year. We'll give you a tryout. So in 2006, I, I went out to the Rollies mm-hmm. and saw that for the first time out of Broome. And uh, he he enjoyed what I brought to the to their show and I enjoyed working with them. And so he said, okay, come to Papua New Guinea later in the year. So 2006 in December, I, I went to PNG for the first time. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, that was a start of an association that I've kept up every single year other than last year during during the lockdown, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and so eventually, after I spent 
uh, 13 years with with North Star Cruises and eventually was was managing most of their onboard um, marine science and sort of delivering the science aspect of their ecotourism program. Hmm. So that um, that gave me a fantastic overview, obviously, of the whole region up to our north because uh, the vessel would go up to Indonesia in October. Uh, we would do Komodo and Flores and Roti. Um, we would do the Banda Sea. Um, you know, all these great iconic dive destinations like Takabonarate and Wakatobi and uh, Raja Ampat, uh, Misul, you know, a lot of these places that some of your listeners either would know of or perhaps have been to themselves. Mm. Um, Chendrawasi Bay and then in early November we would take the vessel right across the top of New Guinea into the waters of Papua New Guinea. And so, again, we, we did the whole of the Bismarck Sea Pretty well anywhere it was possible to take that boat, we went, and you know, because that was Craig Housen's vision to to use it as a tool, not a jewel, mm. uh, to get out there and, and do some exploring. So by uh, 2017, when I when I finished with those guys, or even before then, I, I I realized a couple of things really jumped out at me about that area. Firstly, it still had some of the most incredible coral reefs in the world. Uh, the biodiversity was just absolutely off the chain mm-hmm. um and yes large parts of it had been overfished especially up the indonesian end but a lot of the Papua new guinea and solomon islands end if you were away from where you know too many people were there was still quite number good numbers of big fish of sharks of marine animals that was the first thing i mean it really the, the biodiversity of the place really hit me mm-hmm. secondly i was all through that area due the during the big global bleaching event of 2015 and 2016 when Reefs all around the world bleached. It was the big one on the Great Barrier Reef where we we lost a huge amount of coral cover in the whole northern third. But those waters of, of Raja Ampat and, and of PNG and Solomons didn't really bleach. Yeah. Um, why? We're not quite sure. The water was certainly hot up there as well. But the result was the relative value of those high biodiversity reefs just skyrocketed um, given that, a lot of places elsewhere really got hit hard. I mean, the, you know, we lost a lot of the biodiversity of the northern Great Barrier Reef. We, the Coral Sea got hit, uh, Fiji got hit, you name it. Um, Japan, uh, the Indian Ocean got badly hit. So a lot of these iconic dive places got really hardly hit. So, and then the third thing that dawned on me, of course, going through that area is no one was really operating up there. It was very remote. Uh, a lot of the charts weren't even accurate. Um, and yet there were, there were local people living all through this 2,000 kilometre long archipelago of islands. Mm-hmm. Um, their populations were still increasing rapidly. They were starting to see signs of overfishing on their reef. Um, and there was just not really much happening out in the islands in terms of helping them with with marine conservation and even getting the message across to them that they would actually catch more fish out of their fisheries with about 30% of their reef in a, in a protected area, which is which is what the science that members of our team have, have done on the Great Barrier Reef and showed really, really clearly. So um, at that point I decided, look, I, I'm, I, I have a skill set now in terms of marine biology, in terms of knowledge of all these areas, in terms of connections with the local people, by that stage I could I could speak both Bahasa Indonesia and uh, PNG Tok Pidgin quite fluently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the guy that was being sent into the village to meet with the, the landowners and talk to them about vessel access and I would always be talking to them about their reefs and so forth. And I just suddenly thought, wow, there's really a need for, uh, you know, a, a conservation organisation that's strongly backed by science and it's strongly backed by people with 
expedition capability and, and vessel navigation capability in these areas because the two, you know, the two go absolutely hand in hand. You can't go out there and, and either do diving or do science if you can't get out there in a vessel. So you have to have a vessel and you have to know how to operate it in these really remote parts of the world. And it, it's a totally different ball game mm. doing vessel operations up there as it is in a developed country. So I just thought, okay, there's there's a window there. If I don't do it, then who? Uh, and so in 2017, that was sort of the genesis of the idea of the Coral Sea Foundation. Um, and and we kicked it off. We, we kicked it off with about you know, donations of probably about $8,000, mm-hmm. uh, very, very shoestring budget. Um, and, you know, one of the first things we did was was train some Indigenous women up in Papua New Guinea that were, were very, very keen uh, on getting involved in diving and marine conservation. We'd actually come across a woman like that in 2012. She was from one of our partner villages and she'd expressed a really strong interest in in, in studying marine biology and pres- trying to preserve her reefs. And I thought, wow, that's a really, uh, that's worth supporting. So in 2017 and 2016, she'd actually been down to Townsville to Magnetic Island. We'd put her through her dive master and then we'd sent her back home. And in local language, she had spoken to the landowners in her area, which was, was at the end of Ferguson Island in the Milne Bay province. It had some of the best reef I'd seen anywhere in all those travels I'd done on True North. And it was a place we'd gone back to on True North every single year since I found it in 2006 because the reef was just so good. Mm. And so I sent her back there with this training. We, we By that stage, she was a dive master and the local guys here, my mates at Pleasure Divers on Magnetic Island, trained her for free. You know, great. They really pitched in and helped. We got her to dive master. We sent her back. And in local language, she was able to talk to all these landowner groups along that area and explain to them the science, the benefits of marine reserves, the fact that they would catch more fish, they would preserve their their own resources, and they would also have a resource that would attract ecotourists uh, back to their area. And you know, they really listened to her. I was, well, that's, I was, that's the, the the big difference that you've got there. Sorry to interject, but I was doing similar stuff when I was based in Tufi in Papua mm. New Guinea, and communicating in English has maybe a twenty percent hit rate. But as soon as yeah. you've got a guy there or a lady there that can speak pigeon and do it fluently and speak with passion, you've got a hundred percent attention from anybody that's in that vicinity. Absolutely, mate. I mean, you know, there's 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 right ways and wrong ways to try and go about engaging the local people in Melanesia and mm. and trying to help them manage their marine resources. And many people have just come in there blind stumbled around, not had appreciation of the culture, the incredibly complex culture of PNG, mm-hmm. not done their anthropology properly before they've come in and tried to do their, their conservation science. And, it, you know, there's a long list of failed marine reserve projects in that part of the world for exactly those reasons. Yeah. Um, so in any way, one of the, there'd been success with that first woman, Laurie, and so one of the first things I did when we had a little bit of money, that when we had our first $8,000, is I sent another couple of women out to do their training um, in uh, in the Louisiades. And at that point, the local people from Laurie's area said to me, okay, we'd love to do this marine reserve thing and we know Dr Andy for having seen him come here on the True North, mm-hmm. but we really want him to come back, you know, as, as representing the Coral Sea Foundation and show that he's serious about helping us. 
So at that point, I was like, okay, wow, you know, with $8,000 in the bank, how do you put an expedition together into the <laughs> Mill Bay province of, of Papua New Guinea? It certainly wasn't going to be on a, on a, on a 50-metre expedition vessel with a helicopter on the back deck. Yeah. And so I just did it. I just did it island style. I I, I flew up to uh, to Moresby and then into Alatau. I had two Nelly bins full of gear. Um, we we chartered a twenty three foot longboat with a forty horsepower outboard out of Alatau. Um, we'd done our fuel calculations and we estimated we we're going to need four hundred liters to do the whole job. So we had a drum um, and a whole lot of other containers on the boat. Um, at the last minute, the Malaysian sea cucumber mafia came and almost, uh, you know, took the boat out from underneath me. So there was a few little uh, tense moments there as I, I was putting the boat owner in contact with these guys that wanted to take it for the sea cucumber season. Mm. In the end, we got the go ahead um, and we we went out there 150 k's in a long boat. It took us five hours to get out to uh, <laughs> to Ferguson Island. Uh, but it was absolutely stunning, and I mean, it was amazing to see. It was a trip, obviously, that I'd done numerous times on True North, but we'd almost always done it in the dark, mm-hmm. um, just running on the plotter and the radar. So, and it's an incredible coastline. Um, and so, I spent ten days with the people out there, and, and um, they were, you know, really happy that I'd come, and we had a really good chance to talk about it all. And out of that came the formation of the Nua Marine Reserve Network, which was a uh, you know, a fantastic achievement by the local people. It's seven different landowner groups along the Sanaroa Channel, uh, all committed reef uh, to this network. And Laurie and, and the team in the community have, have really been working super hard to to manage it and spread the awareness and put up the signs showing where the reserve areas are. And mm. um, you know, and we've been funding them and 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 getting that medical aid and other things that they desperately need, water tanks into those villages so that they actually see that there is some benefit from, from taking part in this process. Had, so they, um, had, had, they, had they seen any kind of um, outside influences coming in from the commercial aspect? Like you mentioned the sea cucumbers. Um, has the eastern, straight western world approached that area yet? Um, uh, and the look, commercial fishing? Every now and then, yes, you know, there would be some commercial boats in the distance. But to be honest, no, we didn't see many, many commercial boats through there. The, the sea cucumbers fishery is all boat, basically the local people mm. fishing them in out of their dinghies. Uh, but, of course, it's it's the Asian buyers that are buying both the sea cucumber and, of course, the flip side was they were buying shark fin illegally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the two, the two were going hand in hand. Um, I'm interested, really interested to hear how the ladies that are doing this fabulous work are, are getting the message across to the local community about the importance of the sharks in the in the waters and trying to prevent that shark finning. Yeah, look, I mean, we, we don't really have to push the message too hard, Matt. I mean, mm. this has been the interesting thing. I mean, I, I think people think that we have to go up there and try and sell this idea of marine conservation to these people. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, the opposite is the case. I mean, we, we've got far more communities out there now with their hands up for help with their marine conservation work you know than we can deal with even with you know a big quite a big team of people in in Alatau and Milne Bay now Mm. Um, they can all see that the the fish stocks are going down Mm. I mean sharks don't reproduce very quickly it's hard to see sharks in Papua New Guinea now I mean anyone any of them that spend any time in the water can see that the shark population has really crashed up there that's 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 easy to see uh, as has the population of giant clams. And if you're anywhere near a major village where there's people, then you don't really see many fish bigger than 30 centimetres on the reef. Yeah. So the, 
you know, they're in there every day. They can see that. They just don't quite know what to do about it. Yeah. Uh, so, can you know, getting the message across, and, and that's where the women come in because, firstly, they can, they can speak local language. Secondly, all of the reefs up in Melanesia are owned by somebody. So the very first job you have when you come into an area is to understand, you know, these, these deep layers of um, cultural ownership and connection and, and, you know, whether there's been any fighting or resource wars over the different reefs that you're talking about. Mm. And the best way to get that information is to send Indigenous women into the village to talk to the other people there and get that information. They can get that information much more quickly and much more clearly than a white man can coming in from the outside and trying to bumble his way through pigeon. Definitely. I mean, some of these places, they don't even speak pigeon very well. You, you have to talk to them in local language. Mm. So so that's where, the you know, the role of the women is is really important. And, um, and, but I mean, most of the women in our program or a lot of them are university trained. And, and that's what we realized, you know, with setting up this Sea Women in Melanesia program was there was this huge human resource in, especially in Port Moresby of these, of, of these young, young people passionate about conservation going through the university system in PNG, studying biology, studying marine science, studying environmental science. 75% of them were women. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a lot of those women were from coastal areas and they were landowners. Their families and their clans had land ownership rights over these reefs. So for me, it was an absolute no-brainer. I mean, I, you know, people sort of jump up and down and go, oh, wow, you know, it's such an innovative program that you've started to, to empower these women to take a lead role in this conservation. And I just sort of think, no, it's actually not. It's really absolutely a no-brainer if you've spent any time there. Mm. Um because you see straight away that it's it's usually the, the young women and even the, the women in the community that are responsible for feeding the family and doing the garden and catching the fish, they're, they're thinking about their resources all the time. I mean, you have to be. That's your supermarket yeah. in PNG. If the garden's not functioning and the reef's not got fish, you're in deep trouble. So, it, it, you know, it made a lot of sense just to go down that road and, and oh, I'm just so, so tremendously proud of how, those women, once they've been given the initiative and once they've, the, the, the ball's been put in their hands, how they have just run with it. And they've done such a good job. They've worked so hard, especially all through this pandemic. Our field operations have been continuing right through uh, all of our areas of operation. Mm-hmm. And that is, in, you know, out of Kimbay uh, in the Bismarck Sea, uh, our Kimbay team, Naomi Longa, and her people there have done expeditions all in Kimby Bay and all as far out as Manus, right up to the western end of Manus, just a degree south of the equator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting incredible survey imagery and and really getting some of the only information that's currently out there about this, the state of those reefs, whether they're showing any bleaching damage, uh, you know, what what fish are in the water. So you know, they've been doing a, a fantastic job and. Um, you know, that's as we've grown the foundation, um, that's really, really been my major objective is to make sure that our teams of people that are up there in Melanesia are properly resourced, that they have the dive gear that they need, they have the survey gear that they need, which the big one that we've realised now, if you put a high-quality underwater digital camera that has GPS capability built into it, if you put that in the hands of, of an Indigenous person, a trained Indigenous woman... You show her how to use it, even remotely. Just mentor them from here. Yeah. They can go. They can go out now and use that system, giving them, given the method that we've taught them, to with very light amount of training to send back an incredible amount of very detailed information. I mean, you know, you think of 
a high-resolution photograph of the reef in front of a marine scientist, we can pull all sorts of information out of that one picture. And coral species, the growth forms, the heterogeneity of the reef surface, whether there's any damage of any sort, all of that can come out of one properly collected high-resolution image. Mm. And if it's, if it's got a GPS tag in it, then we know exactly where it's from, down to about five or six or ten metres. And, you know, that's, that's a game-changer because in order to monitor coral reefs and how they're going, you have to regularly look at them through time. And if, so, you don't look exa- if you don't look at the same place, you get a different answer. I mean, yeah. you've seen yourself and any of, your, any of, your, of your, your listeners that have dived a lot will know that one of the features of coral reefs is their extreme spatial variability. Mm. You know, dive sites can vary enormously in coral cover just tens of metres or hundreds of metres apart, let alone whole reefs separated by kilometres or tens of kilometres or thousands of kilometres. So... Um, you know, having that having that capability now in the hands of these of these women has been a real game changer. And in fact, it's the same technology that we're rolling out with our citizen science um, programs on the Great Barrier Reef, which you know, which is where I've just been last week up on Lizard Island, running a, a, a program up there. And we were using exactly the same technology uh, provided by Olympus Australia. So I mean, I'm giving a shout out to those guys. Well, I was going to say it's the the, the, the TG six. It's got to be the TG six. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it, most people probably aren't even using the GPS function on it because they're using it underwater. And you know, part of learning to use the system was learning how to how long you had to hold it in the air to get it fixed, and then how many seconds you've got underwater to shoot your imagery before the system goes, okay, I can't see the GPS anymore, and then it doesn't log, it doesn't log the lat long in the image. Yeah. So you know, we worked out we've got about eight seconds. So in that time, we can take two photos and then we get it back up on our head swim forward another five meters and, and repeat the process so, so so you've actually got to take the photo raise it in the air hold it for a bit and then move and do the same again what we worked out was the easiest way to do it as we were swimming along was just put the thing on top of our head yeah and you could look down and see where you were going and then and then as soon as you got to the point where you wanted to take the photo you put it underwater we, we take one photo and about two meters above the reef so yeah so you take one photo looking forward and down so that you could see the surface of the reef and, and the shape of it. Mm. And then you would just swim forward about three or four fin kicks. And then the next photo is the critical one because it has to point straight down or it has to be perpendicular to the reef surface. Really the the, the game-changing technology that we've we're brought to bear in this in monitoring both in Melanesia and on the Great Barrier Reef is using these geotagging cameras. So, I mean, we've been very uh, lucky that Olympus Australia has has supported us with the supply of those of those systems and that camera has a has a GPS built into it which means that any image that it collects whether it's up in Papua New Guinea in the hands of an indigenous woman mm. or it's here in Australia in the hands of a marine scientist it means that image is geotagged so we know exactly where and when it was taken and it returns an incredible amount of information a lot of detail of the surface of the coral reef and so in front of a marine scientist with lots of experience, we can look at that and we can tell a, a whole lot about the types of corals that are in there, their growth form. We can look at whether they've been damaged or not. Um, by the composition of the image, we can get an idea of uh, the history of that reef and so forth. So that, that camera technology has, has really been important, um, both on the, uh, the Great Barrier Reef, where, for example, we've just been using it up at Lizard Island last week with the citizen science expedition mm-hmm. to map some of our long-term research sites up there and our team up in in png has just come back into alatau 
Uh, yesterday, they've been out in the engineering group of islands uh, for five days, a team of two women, and they collected 600 geotagged images in four or five days of surveys on those reefs and got back to town, uploaded them to Google Drive. I've just pulled them down onto my machine and overlaid them on, on Google Earth and it's, I can see exactly where they went. Yeah. I, can click, I can click on the icon on the Google Earth screen. It, flows, it throws up the image of what the reef looked like right there. Fantastic. So, I mean, that's, you know, that stuff's really game-changing. Yeah. When did Coral Sea Foundation start? Pretty much. Um, at the, uh, 2017 was the, my last year on True North and so 2018 I really devoted myself full-time to setting it up and running it, mm. uh, and that was from the ground up. So, you know, we had to register the NGO, go through all the – jump through all the bureaucratic hoops mm-hmm. um, and then start the the process of, of fundraising. Um, you know, and I certainly wouldn't recommend starting an NGO to anybody unless you've got a really, <laughs> really thick skin. Um, you know, you're basically a, a glorified beggar. You have to have no um, – yeah, I wouldn't say no feelings, but you have to be really, really used to getting rejected time and time and time again, and, and you have to have a lot of persistence uh, and perseverance and just a, an attitude of like, we just don't give up on this because it's it's too important. Hmm. And, and look, the results start to come, and I think it's like any field of endeavour. If you start getting results and you start delivering a professional service and you start getting results, eventually people will notice uh, it's like that old saying, of, you know, if you, even if you've got a, a great restaurant out in the middle of the woods, people are going to beat a path to your door. Mm. And there's just that lag time. So you have, to, you have to be prepared to grind away for three years in order to start getting the results on the board. But, you know, we're, we're in a much better position now that we, that we have actually got a whole lot of results on the board. And I think people are starting to see now that, okay, yeah, you, you, you guys have a – a team of really competent people. I mean, we've got people at the top of their game in marine science. We've got people uh, that have international business experience. Uh, we've got former special forces operators. We've got uh, multi-hull sailors. We've got, you know, Master 4, Master 3 mariners, uh, people with, with experience in humanitarian aid delivery in Africa and all across Melanesia. So, I mean, we've got a really great team of people. And, of course, when you bring all that all that human resource power to bear, you start getting really good results. So, mm. I'm I'm sort of really happy with with how it's with how it's going now, and I feel like we're, you know, in a small way making a difference. But the organisation's growing strongly; it has never slowed down in its growth uh, at any stage since I started it. Mm. Um, you know, the our, we're we're very lucky to have some very good partners, some very consistent partners that have supported us. Uh, through that that journey that understand the vision and what we're trying to do and you know and lots of new partners are coming on board um, and and of course bringing bringing with them greater amounts of funding which lets us which is, lets us deliver more effective programs out in the field so mm. yeah it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time it's it's great to be involved with it well it certainly looks impressive I just love to look through all the support that you do have so far um, obviously the more the merrier but it's a it's a fantastic lineup really is yeah no we're and we're 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 lucky to have um really been supported well in europe i mean i I will also give a shout out to um our partners in germany so we won the ocean tribute award at the start of 2020 and so that's uh funded by the german ocean foundation uh by uh prince albert the second and monaco's foundation Mm -hmm. uh the people at messi dusseldorf in in dusseldorf in germany uh c bob 
So, you know, they, they supported us with that award. And then earlier this, this year, we picked up the, the Blue Marine Foundation out of the UK. We picked up their Ocean Award uh, in the human category for Naomi Longer's work with the Sea Women Program up in Papua New Guinea. So it's great to have that inter- international recognition out of Europe. And, you know, we're, we've also starting to get some significant funding and some significant support out of the United States uh, as well, mm. so it, it's great. You know, it's it's great to build these international networks of of people and organisations that that share share the vision and and share, I guess, a passion for coming up with new and innovative ways of uh, doing this marine conservation work. Because we have to be moving that fast now. You know, we're really quickly running out of time on this stuff. We don't we don't have time for a go slow approach. We we need to be thinking outside the box, coming up with innovative stuff. And, and working quickly because, you know, we're, we're pressed for time on the climate stuff now. Uh, we're pressed for time on the overfishing side of things, um, plastic pollution, you name it. I'm sure all your listeners are aware that the ocean is facing increasing and multiple threats on multiple fronts. Mm. Uh, and it's in our power to do something about that, uh, but it's not going to happen if we all sit on our bums and do nothing. And it's not going to happen even if we do get engaged and we try and do it the same old way as we've tried before. So... Was it, was, was it all leaded to then, um, Andy? What's your, have you got a, a long game or are you just oh, sure. all in on everything for as long as you can? No, mate, absolutely we've got a long game. I mean, my, my ultimate vision, uh, given the importance of the Great Barrier Reef, the Coral Sea and this, this eastern arc of the Coral Triangle up to our north, hmm. my long-term vision, my long-term goal is to see that area properly resent, represented with 30% of it or more in functioning marine reserves. Um, but, you know, there's only, I want to make it really clear to everyone listening, there's only two things that are going to save our coral reefs. And you hear people talking about let's save the reefs, coming up with all these wacky ideas to save the reef. There's only two things that are going to save it. One is we have to get our carbon emissions down. Mm. The, the ecosystem itself is sensitive to temperature and we're ramping up the temperature now faster than has probably ever happened before in the geological record. If we get to four degrees of global warming, the reefs are toast. I mean, I can guarantee you that. Mm. And, a, and a world without coral reefs is also a world without other calcareous animals. It's a world without crustaceans, with prawns, with oysters. At that point, we have an ocean full of jellyfish. And we aren't going to support a population of 9 billion humans on this planet with an open ocean full of jellyfish. So I'll leave it to your listeners to work out what the end result of that is going to be. Mm. So we cannot get to four degrees. So the first thing we need to do is we need this action on climate and it has to happen hard and fast now. You know, it should have happened in the 90s. The fossil fuel industry has slowed it down to the best of its ability for all that time. I mean, that's blatantly clear now. And we need to get those guys out of the way. We need to march forward with this push on on renewables, which now makes economic sense. And we have to get that stuff happening quickly. The second thing is we know that protected areas work and we have to get this goal of 30% of our oceans, 30% of our coral reefs, at least in marine protected areas. Those two things are the only two things that are going to give it a future. Uh, If we do one without the other, it's not going to work. But if we can do both of them, the reefs are still going to suffer. I mean, we're on an upward trajectory now in temperature. There's no getting away from further temperature rise. The question is how much is it going to be and what element of coral reef ecosystems can we, can we get through that, that peak 
uh, you know, until we have another couple of centuries to get the the whole climate system stable again. Mm. If we can keep the warming to two or two and a half degrees, we've got a chance. If it gets to four, we don't have much of a chance. So there's there's that urgency on both of those things. Uh, and, you know, and and that's, that's to my mind, that that's the, the two really big ones, the two really important ones. I think the plastic thing is a, is a real distraction at the moment. Uh, everyone's getting caught up on plastic. I mean, let's be clear, plastic is not going to raise a sea level by 10 metres. Mm. Plastic is not going to cook the world's coral reefs. Yes, it's a problem. Yes, it's, it's breaking up into tiny particles and it's polluting a lot of places, but the stuff is inert. That's why it doesn't go anywhere in the environment. It's, it's not nearly as bad as, for example, radiation as for some of the heavy metals, uh, and it's certainly not as bad as pumping a whole lot of CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. Mm. So, you know, we need to stay focused, I, I think, anyway, on those two big picture, big ticket items. And, and, you know, I think, you know, to probably be a bit controversial, I see some of the funding that's going into marine conservation stuff in Australia at the moment, which has come through the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, which itself was supported by the minerals industry heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of those, some of the, the money that's being spent at the moment on, you know, on restoration technologies and, and you know, super breeding of corals and um, people talking about putting fans on the reef or shading the reef or, you know, all this tech intervention, it's, 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 it's a sideshow. It's a sideshow to the big picture stuff, which is rapid and deep cuts to emissions and, you know, more extensive rollout of marine protected areas and making sure that they're properly managed. I mean, those two are the big things. So I really want to stress that point um, to all of your listeners. You know, that's that's what the science is telling us. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, all the people that are listening to this are the people that are proactive. You know, let's let's make a change. The downside is the people that aren't listening to this are the ones that just want to make money and don't give a toss about the reef. Yeah, well, you know, there's always going to be those people out there, but we just Mm. don't stop the fight. At the end of the day, those of us that care about the ocean and that care about the planet, we know that it's the the whole ocean and the planet at stake. So we're not going to give up. I mean, that's the Mm. attitude that all the people that I work with have and all the people that that I connect with out of my surfing crew and my kite surfing crew and the diving crew and... They're all passionate, strong-willed people, and they're they're not giving up. Uh, I think the the flip side, you know, the other the other half, they're just like money, and money's not nearly quite so spiritually fulfilling as as a passion to save the environment. So mm-hmm. I think I think that thing's going to be in our favour. At the end of the day, I think more people are going to give a toss than than don't give a toss. But it, it's you know it's an exciting time to be alive. It's it's what we do in the next. It literally is what we do in the next couple of decades that decides the trajectory of the human race and our civilization for the next probably mm. millennia or more. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot on the table and yeah. we, need to be, we need to be going hard. I mean, that's the way I see it. I'm 52 now. Um, I'm going as hard now as I've ever worked in my life and, and because I see the urgency and, and with, that, with that 30 years of marine experience, I see that I can actually deliver change now and help other people to understand the reef and really help them push for the change that we need yeah and I, the thing that i do like i mean we touched base literally yesterday um as i was reading or should i say the missus was reading about scott morrison having his wendy on about um the the barrier reef in the news yesterday and i caught sight of your i think it was the latest uh, social media link you put up and it was those photos of the reef and you're saying how it's coming back over a yeah. f- was it a five-year period four-year period 
five-year period. Yeah, this is the reefs at Lizard Island. Yeah, that have mm. that have that have been come. I mean, Lizard Island is a fantastic natural laboratory because it's very well studied, and it got absolutely smashed three years in a row. It got it was a direct hit with a core of two Category Four cyclones, mm. and then it was at the very epicenter of the 2016 bleaching event. So. Virtually anything on those reefs in terms of corals that wasn't able to survive those three things died out. So it was a it was a complete reset. And as I said, the Great Barrier Reef goes through those resets. Uh, it always has. Obviously, they're coming thick and fast now as we add bleaching on top of changes to water quality and craniform staff fish outbreaks and everything else. But the fundamental point that the Great Barrier Reef has evolved in a setting where it regularly gets disturbed you know, that point shouldn't be lost on everyone, you know, mm. because it's the recovery from disturbance that is the crucial point that we need to be studying and knowing about. If Because if that starts to fail, then we're in real trouble. Mm. So it's not so much the estimate of how much living coral is on the Great Barrier Reef at any one point in time. You know, that's a static thing. The crucial thing we need to know about is the reef's recovery potential and to what extent that is being compromised by the pressures that we're putting it under. Yeah. And the only way to get that information is through regular monitoring out in the field of the same places over time. And, you know, this is the, the message that I push very, very strongly. The Great Barrier Reef itself is so big, even with the effort of, of the Australian Institute of Marine Science's long-term monitoring, long monitoring program, with the, all the other monitoring programs and tourism activities and crown of thorns control activities that go on on the Great Barrier Reef, we, we regularly see and we have information from about 600 of the 3,000 reefs on the Great Barrier Reef. So we don't even have a very clear understanding of the current status of the reef and we certainly don't have a very clear understanding across the whole reefscape of its ability to, to be recovering. You know, if you ask the question, oh, how is the Great Barrier Reef coping, Andy, with the extra bleaching damage and the crown of thorn, the answer is really... You know, we can make a guess, but we can't really say clearly enough because we don't have enough information on what the whole the whole reef is doing. Mm. And you can't make a statement about the whole reef um, if you're only sampling a, a small subset of it. So, you know, my my push really, or my suggestion to the federal government is triple the amount of effort you're putting into actually understanding the reef and making sure that we know, okay, which bits are being damaged, which corals are the survivors and which ones aren't. Mm. When they come back, are they coming back from bleaching tolerant parents or are they just coming back from the general genetic pool of corals that are going to get cooked again the next time the, the bleaching event comes around? Uh, you know, these are the sort of questions of fundamental marine science that we still need fundamental marine biology in the field being done to answer. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't need people getting concerned about, you know, farming coral fragments that are only ever going to be used to, to repopulate an area the size of your house or your street. Mm. We need to be focusing on the stuff that is going to help us manage the whole system, the, the whole 2,000 kilometres of, of the system. And have you, is the resources there to be able to do this, to achieve the goal of, of actually looking after it properly? Of course not, because the, the Liberal National Coalition government uh, is anti-science. They've, mm. they've stripped funding out of most of our major research institutions. They've, they've any, anyone that, you know, they, they don't want uh, a smart, scientific, literate country because that immediately points the finger at their policies, which 
don't take into account science. I mean, the, the, the policies of, Australian, of the Australian government don't clearly take into account the climate science. If they did, they wouldn't be still pushing for the, for the more exporting of coal. They wouldn't be pushing for a, a, a gas-led recovery and, and filling the whole administrative panel of, of, the, of the committee responsible for bringing the country out of the COVID crisis, filling it with gas industry executives. Mm. I mean, you know, we're, I, I'll tell you, I've got partners all over the world, business partners, personal partners. Australia is a laughing stock at the moment all around the world. They're just looking at us and going, what are you guys doing? Mm. Um, you know, so we, we definitely need change. And I guess that's the other big thing in terms of, you know, people say, oh, what can I do? What can I do? The most important thing you can do is with your vote. And it's really important now that we start to vote in progressive governments that can see the problem in front of us and they know and, and, and take the action that we need to position Australia, for God's sake, as a leader in the renewable energy industry. I mean, we should be the tech hub of our region. We should be exporting hydrogen and electricity. We, you know, we should be the Saudi Arabia of our region with respect to energy. Mm. And at the moment, we're Asia's quarry, you know, with our head in the sand thinking, okay, oh, we're still somehow going to run the country on exports of coal and natural gas. Mate, all our major trading partners are walking away from coal and gas as fast as they can. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's sad. It's, and, and it is the vested interests behind the Liberal National Government that are still deeply entrenched in the fossil fuel industry. They've got, they've got Morrison and his mates completely under their, under their thumb. It's, it's no secret. You know, look at the links between, the, you know, the Murdoch newspapers, the fossil fuel industry, the number of people in the Liberal National Government that have got connections to the gas industry or the coal industry. It's quite sickening, to, to be honest, from my point of view, you know, as, a, as someone who's concerned about my kids' future and the future of the reef, Mm. to see, you know, the people in charge of this country knowingly and willingly doing the very things that are going to keep destroying it. I mean, that makes me furious if I think about it for long enough. Well, seeing as, you, seeing as I've got you on point, what's your, what's your reaction to um, Morrison's um, points of view on uh, on the Great Barrier Reef? Was it yesterday, day before? Oh, what, he's, he's um, being upset because the United Nations is going to de, de or put it a, as, a, as a thing in danger. Yeah. Look, they've been saying that every year for the last six years, you know, to, to claim that he's, that he's been blindsided by it is absolute rubbish. Mm. Um, oh, look, I mean, anything, anything these guys say about the Great Barrier Reef, I, I hardly, scarcely pay any attention to because, you know, like I said, if they were serious, they wouldn't be opening the Adani coal mine. They wouldn't be having Barnaby Joyce stand up, the leader of the National Party, now saying, you know, let's go flat out more coal mines, more coal-fired power stations, you know, mm. Angus Taylor. It's the same, these guys. They're so deeply entrenched to the of the, the pockets of their fossil fuel mates. It's, it's just despicable. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I mean, as to the question of whether the reef should be degraded, um, you know, look, I don't know. I think it probably sends a pretty strong message that, it's um, that it's got its that it's got its threats and it's it's in a bit of trouble. Um, you know, the, the point I make to everyone is right now there's still massive amounts of the Great Barrier Reef that are that are in good condition, and as far as I can see, the recovery capability of the reef, certainly in the places that I'm looking, is still there. Whether it's still coming back now as fast as it used to after damage, say in the 80s 
or in the 1930s or in the 1700s, hmm. it's, we can't really say because we don't have data back that far. But certainly what I've seen at somewhere like Lizard Island, and this is why I say Lizard Island is so important because it's a well-studied reef. It got completely annihilated in terms of its coral cover. I mean, literally there was almost no adult branching corals within a 100-kilometre radius of Lizard Island. They all got bleached, all got smashed by the cyclone. So, I mean, there was people very high up in academia in uh, in Queensland saying that area of the reef is never going to be the same again. It's never going to recover. Mm. It's going to turn into an algal-dominated pavement. Um, so what it gives us, though, is an incredible natural laboratory to follow the recovery process of the reef because we know the whole of the island got smashed it wasn't just one bit you know the crown of thorns outbreak there's always a few bits that get left or a cyclone there's always bits that were protected that get got left i mean the whole of lizard got annihilated so what it gives us is a very very good opportunity to study the recovery process and it is complex this is the this is the point that i keep trying to make to people you know this fundamental marine science of how these reefs recover from disturbance still needs to be done. We still don't fully understand the complexities of that process. I mean, just to give you an example at Lizard Island, even in 2016, in June 2016, three months after the bleaching event, we were already seeing juvenile corals at a couple of sites in Watson's Bay on the leeward side of the island. You know, I jumped in there and, of course, I was devastated by what I saw, but as I was swimming around, I was like, oh, hang on, there's actually some baby branching corals already on the reef here mm-hmm. and they, they were in a couple of different size classes so there was some the size of your of a five cent piece which probably had come from the spawning <clears throat> in the november before yeah there was some the size of an apple which means they were a year older again and there were there were a few that were the size of you know say a rock melon which means they were from two years before mm. so even at that time, there were coral, baby corals on that reef that had survived at least one cyclone and the, and the major bleaching event. So, I mean, that to me was, was interesting. But I looked at other places around Lizard Island and there were none. So I was like, okay, wow, straight away there's an interesting pattern. Some have survived in some parts and others haven't survived in other places. Yeah. And so then as we kept going back year and year and watching where the baby corals come back, it was very, very interesting patterns. I mean, they, they come back into very specific zones uh, you know, and, you know, you can go to the reef crest, for example, and it took a while to get going. I mean, the, the, the reef crest at Lizard didn't start to really get appreciable coral settlement for about 12 or 18 months. And then suddenly, boom, it got carpet blanket recruitment of, of juvenile branching <laughs> corals. But in this very distinct band, you know, below six metres, there was none. Yeah. And as you went across the reef flat, 50 metres in from the reef crest, there was none. But in this band along the reef crest, we were getting 30 or 40 per square metre. Uh, and so that's what we're seeing now with, a, you know, if, if people jump on our social media and have a look at some of the posts that came out of the last trip to Lizard Island, you'll see North Point, the very northernmost point of Lizard Island. And it's a place we've been monitoring for since 2005. Uh, and we've seen it cycle from full coral cover down to probably only 10%, got smashed by the crown of thorns in the 90s came back again uh, and it was, again, back at a very high coral cover state before the first cyclone, got completely annihilated. I mean, we went there in 2016 and it was bare pavement. There was there was almost, you couldn't even find a, a living branching coral on there. You go back today, I mean, have a look at the photos 
that blanket recruitment happen, those corals have been growing at seven or eight centimetres a year, they're now actually bumping into one another and there's places there on that reef that are back to nearly 100% coral cover. So yet it hasn't happened like that around the whole island, you know. This is the, and so it's these subtleties that we, we, we try and convey to people and convey to the general public and I think that's, our, that's part of our role as an organisation uh, given that we've got a background in ecotourism, given that we're that we're media savvy and we're te- we're tech savvy, that we can we can bring all those things together and try and convey to people the subtleties and the complexities of this system that we're that we're looking at, mm. because it isn't one that suits being uh, simplified. You know, people talk about the reef as if it's a, it's like your grandmother or or you know a dog. Like, what's the health of the reef? Is the reef dying? Is it dead? Is it okay? It's, you know, it's 3,000 reefs across 2,000 kilometres. It's it's very complex system. It's the most complex ecosystem ever to evolve on the planet. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to assume that we know what it's doing, we fully understand it is incredibly arrogant. I've got to, I've got to chirp in and say about um, citizen science, um, that's, yep. that, that's got to be a great help to you, especially when you're looking at these kind of distances. Yeah, look, it's it's it, it has its role to play, mm-hmm. um, and and our our aim at the moment is to make sure that 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 citizen science effort is returning valuable data. Mm. Uh, you know, just because you send someone out to the reef with a camera in their hand and say, "Okay, swim around for half an hour and take a hundred pictures," you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get high quality data back from that person, depending on where they point the camera, mm. depending on whether they know how to use it the angle of the pictures to the substratum, whether they've even got any idea where they were. If the camera's not geotagging, then as we said before, I mean, you know, the, the, the spatial variability is such that if they were 100 metres further to the left or right, they'd come back with a whole different set of information. But we need we need all hands on deck for monitoring the Great Barrier Reef. And I think that's the important point is that we have to we have to utilise all the resources that we've got. So yes, we've got we've got monitoring vessels. Ains has got a couple of big monitoring vessels, but they can only get to 120 reefs every year, and they run every day. Um, you know, so 120 out of 2,200 is not very many. Yeah. Um, but there's other boats and there's other people all up and down the length of the Great Barrier Reef, and I think that's the that that is the the goal is to make sure that that resource delivers the best quality data that it can to help us support these management decisions that that we have to make about how we monitor it, uh, you know, what actions we take to look after in terms of water quality, in terms of zoning, in, uh, you know, in terms of enforcement, which which reefs should be green zones, which shouldn't. All of that sort of stuff is, is stuff that still management needs that information to support. Mm. And it sounds like you've got a hell of a lot of work to do and uh, you're not going to be stopping anytime soon. <laughs> no, mate, we're, we're, we're pushing on, yeah. pushing on. You know, and, and it's a team effort. I mean, I want to I want to point out that I mean, you know, yes, the Coral Sea Foundation may have been my vision, but it's only coming to fruition through the help of all the people that are pitching in yeah. uh, to to make it work. You know, like any like any team uh, in any in any organisational setting in the world, uh, and the more people that come in, the better. Yeah. Um, you know, and getting back to your previous question, you know, what's the long term goal? The long-term goal is a network of 30% of, of the reefs of this incredible area protected, and that means the whole Coral Sea arc, not just the Great Barrier Reef, but the Coral Sea, Papua New Guinea, Solomon's, Vanuatu, uh, and then, you know, the other big and, – and to facilitate that, 
we need vessels that can move around that whole area. And our, our whole idea has been from a maritime perspective, which, as I said before, is, is critical to being able to do the work out there. Mm-hmm. From a maritime perspective, it's incredibly hypocritical to be talking about climate action, to be talking about the need to save these reefs and yet burning three or 400 litres of diesel an hour in a conventional powered vessel to go around and do the monitoring. Mm. So, I mean, that was, you know, that's the other tangent that, uh, that I guess people don't, I guess it's not on the front of everyone's radar when they look at the Coral Sea Foundation. But from my point of view, having a vessel that can deliver all our operations through that area and do it with virtually 100% renewable energy that was a very, very big aim and goal at the very start of the program. And if people have a look on our website, you, they can see the design uh, that we came up with. And we were very, very happy and grateful to work with um, the excellent team at 123 Naval Architects in Sydney, mm-hmm. who, you know, have got hundreds and hundreds of multi-hull designs to their credit. Um, Mark Stothard at Echo Yachts in, in WA also supported that design process. Uh, and so out of that came came a vessel specifically designed to use renewable energy and operate around the Coral Sea Arc. And, you know, if, if you know, if anyone's out there in, in, in the maritime industry, I want to make the point very strongly that if you're interested in coming up with a test bed location for the ultimate renewable energy powered vessel, the Coral Sea Arc is the perfect place to do it because you've got a very steady, consistent trade wind resource that blows pretty much from the start of April to the start of October, mm-hmm. uh, and when I say blow, average conditions up around the 25-knot mark. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge wind power resource. It's also got solar, and then the other big thing, of course, that it's got after the Second World War, the whole of Melanesia was planted out with coconut plantations, and coconuts produce coconut oil, which is the best biodiesel substrate of any plant material that you can find so as well as having great wind and sunshine it's also got this amazing biofuel resource so we build all that stuff into the de- into the design of that vessel uh, which is a 42 meter uh, 140 foot multi-hull mm-hmm. um it looks it's pretty designed sexy. To, yeah it's designed to sail at 15 knots it's designed to have 16 passengers and 10 crew on board, uh, and the idea is it can do most of its operations using renewable energy. It's it's uh, the power system was backwards compatible, so there's there's gen sets running on biofuel that are then turning electric engines. Um, there's batteries so that it can regenerate power when it's underway, um, and you know our bigger picture model is to have our local communities up there that we're supporting producing the coconut oil for us so that when we come around with the vessel, they have a sustainable biofuel industry that they can that they can draw on. Mm-hmm. And when we come around, we have a fuel and we turn that into biodiesel on the ship. So, you know, are you, that's... Are you also going to have the capability for taking guests on board to, um, you know, you can pull some money in from, from taking them on board and, and fund your oh, journeys and your, your, your research? Absolutely, mate. I mean, that was part of the part of the experience that we gained through working on True North mm. is re- is is understanding what it takes to be comfortable out at sea doing marine operations. It doesn't matter whether you're doing luxury ecotourism or you're out there counting fish or you're delivering aid or whatever you're doing. There's a few crucial things that you need to have to be comfortable on a vessel out there. You know. So the vessel has to have dedicated places for people to have their dive equipment. It has to have camera tables in every room. Uh, it's, it's great to have en suites in every room. You know, no one wants to be 
sharing the shower and the toilet with 10 other people. It's good to be able to have your own private space. So we built all of that, all of that into it. The vessel is designed with a full multifunctional capability. It can deliver high-level ecotourism if that's what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. It can deliver marine science and it can also deliver humanitarian aid and, and help support these biofuel projects. So um, so that's that's in our big picture vision. You know, that's a, that was a $35 million new build. So that's where we're working towards. I mean, that's what we, we hope there's people out there that see that vision and go, okay, yeah, this is something that will be worthwhile supporting these guys with and investing in because it, it ticks a lot of boxes. It ticks a marine science box. It ticks a conservation box. And, it, you know, it allows partners to be at the cutting edge of renewable energy innovation and tech in in commercially operating vessels, not just, not just you know, little boats flitting around the edges, but, you know, this is a serious vessel designed to, to sail fast over really rough water and do it comfortably. Yeah. We, we, we want this thing to go from Cairns to the Jomard Passage in 48 hours. That's the idea. Well, let me know when you're sailing. I'll, I'll, I'll sneak on board. <laughs> we've had a few people. We've had a few people say that they'll say, "I'll pay to come on board just to sail the damn thing from Australia to the Louisiades in thirty-five knots of wind." And I was like, "Mate, it's going to be fun, you know." Yeah. That's, we're all sailors. I mean, most of us in the Coral Sea Foundation all come from a surfing and or kite surfing and multi-hull sailing background. So, you know, we're not when we when we think about boats, we want them to look good, we want them to be sexy, we want them to go fast. Um, and, you know, we want them to be fun to operate. That's important. That certainly looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, Andy, I think we're going to have to wrap it up, and I can only say thank you very much for coming on the show at sh- such short notice, and the work you're doing and the work that the team are doing is just absolutely fantastic. So I would love you to come back on the show at a later date and just give us an update on what's happening with uh, within your environment. No problem, Matt. I mean, it's uh, it's been great to have a chat. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, check us out, CoralSeaFoundation.net. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. And, yes, yeah, stay in touch. I mean, we, we make sure that content's coming out pretty regularly. We, we, we understand that having that mobile phone in everybody's hand that they're looking at a couple of hours a day is an incredible tool to raise awareness which is one of the you know one of the main things in our mission statement is to getting across to people how important and how valuable these reef systems are Mm. so yeah take uh keep uh keep track of what we're doing and um yeah drop us a line if you'd like to be involved definitely definitely and we'll hook you up with the uh scuba goat network as well on the new website that's coming out and within Facebook, all that kind of thing, and get a full-on loop going so people can get you in any which way possible. Sounds great. Thanks, Happy mate. days. Andy, thanks again. Cheers. Bye, everybody. This is Scuba Goat Under the Sea, the podcast for the inquisitive diver.